1: and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad, and I'll be hosting this podcast.
0: Welcome, everybody. Happy Monday, wherever you are. It is 3 p.m. Pacific time where I'm at. I'm in San Francisco. Um, it is rainy Okay, looks like we have a good amount of people to start. Um, so I'm Wire. I'm a project manager here at Fishbowl. Um, I will be leaving the conversation um, to David and Rudy. Uh, They're the hosts of Voice of FinTech. And this discussion is on FinTech 2021 success stories. Um, so I'll leave it up to both of you and I'll drop down to the bottom.
1: Thank you, Rachel. Thank you for the kind introduction as always. Uh, my name is Rudy. Rudy Falad. I'm based in Zurich in Switzerland. David is based in New York. And uh, we host the Voice of Fintech podcast, which uh, started in 2019 in the summer. So this is not necessarily a COVID boredom baby, or it's not at all, actually. And uh, we talk to founders, we talk to investors, uh, corporate innovators, ecosystem hub leaders, and thought leaders around the world. So the US, of course, and Americas, and uh, Africa, Asia, Europe, uh, you name it. And uh, the idea behind the Fishbowl Live is to talk about some of the so-called success stories of fintech, you know, because when you read the, uh, the news about fintech, it's, it's very often quite loaded. You know, it's always uh, a little bit of a self-congratulatory uh, kind of discussion. Everything is great, uh, bigger and bigger valuation and rounds. And, but can you see through it a little bit? Can you see cracks potentially in the facade and uh, maybe get ready for what's coming next? That's what we like to, to do here. And also, you know, it's the end of the year. So I also picked up some of the topics that may be a little bit lighter and uh, maybe we can have a bit of a laugh. And also, um, you know, one last thing I'd like to say is we take FinTech very broadly. so. Fintech uh, to me is anything but life sciences, so that could be anything to do with, uh, with e-commerce, with uh, any kind of platform, any sort of business that makes money or wants to make money. So uh, I'll hand over to David as well a couple of words about yourself, just for people that don't know you yet.
0: Thanks so much. Really, really excited for this uh, fintech as we're wrapping up 2021. And uh, it's been great here in New York the last few weeks, we got all the holiday parties. I recently was at the fintech formal uh, that uh, Nick from This Week in Fintech put on, which was super fun at the, the both house in Central Park. So you know, a lot of highs uh, for the year, of course, some lows and excited to dive deep into it. I in my background, you know, I've been a co host, uh, with Rudy, the last couple of years, bringing on lots of great uh, speakers to so Voice of FinTech, and uh, I work in the data AI ML industry, so really love everything that we're seeing. A lot of great trends. Um, excited to dive
1: into some of these topics today. Yeah, and I just wanted to start with, semi serious topic, but uh, also you know it is a big success. I mean, no, no, uh, no doubt. Da- no doubt, it's about NewBank, right? So. A lot of people heard about New Bank, and it's a Brazilian, you know, Brazilian. Um, I wouldn't even say startup or scale up. It's just the biggest financial institution out of Brazil these days because they went public, and they are bigger than Itau. So, how is that possible that their initial market cap was over forty billion, and then I think the share price jumped another twenty five percent? So they're doing uh, tremendously well as far as the IPO is concerned, but. Uh, I think they're still not making money, right? And um, I think we are living in different times because uh, b- uh, back in the good old days, if you wanted to IPO a business and uh, you didn't make money, this was an exception. Then now it seems like this is a rule. But uh, people seem to love uh, New Bank, and uh, they raised a lot of money to expand to Colombia, uh, where the founder CEO David Velez is from, and also to Mexico. So. I'm I'm a big fan. I'd like them to succeed, but also would like to see some of these digital banks finally turning profits. So I just wanted to ask uh, your thoughts, uh, David. What do you think about New Bank and uh, you know jumping 25% post IPO, even though they are loss-making? Well, look, I think it's great for
0: all things in the startup market to see valuations rise. You know, a rising boat lifts all other boats, right? All startups from pre-seed to IPO, though it also gives me pause that you see Itau has like 10 times the assets under management than new banks. So you start to think about these valuations. I was chatting earlier today with a fund manager who I work with quite closely in the space. And the one thing we said is all the valuations keep coming up. Well, at one point, when will that stop? But of course, everyone's been saying this since 2012 right now. So, you know, it's good for all things in the startup economy.
1: Yeah, even though, you know, there are some traditional investors like JC Flowers who are not so thrilled, right, because they are used to uh, the good old days when uh, the businesses were not only promising they make money, but they did make money. Uh, Obviously, his firm had also some uh, big stories behind themselves, right, but I think he showed up in Berlin the other day, was talking about their success story of Landesbank and turning it around. But uh, on the other hand, uh, hitting at some of the FinTech valuations and some of the FinTech companies that are not making money. Uh, One of them that is pretty big in Germany and um, uh, they just announced they're going to pull out out of uh, the US, Uh, it's N26. Uh, They've raised a lot of money recently. They're valued at 9 billion. Um, This is their second retreat from an English-speaking market. They pulled out of the UK earlier, um, quoting Brexit reasons, and now they're going to pull out of the the United States. Um, They have 500,000 customers in the US, and uh, by January 11th everyone needs to transfer their money somewhere else. So if there is anyone on the the phone listening and uh, you want to comment on it, I guess uh, you may not be happy. Uh, please let us know, but um, the N26 said that they will focus on Europe. They abandoned their global ambitions. So this is in contrast with New Bank, uh who says they will focus on Mexico and Colombia. They want to be pan-Latin American uh, lender, but one of their investors also hinted that they may want to go further than that. So some of the people are making progress, some are not, but it looks like European fintechs in America are not really getting there on the other hand um, i think the robin hood in the uk also was a flop so didn't really go anywhere either and then i just wanted to mention two other banks in the uk big rivals monzo and starling and monzo uh, didn't do very well during the pandemic um, superficial comment would be why, right? It's a digital only bank. They don't have any, uh, they don't have any branches. They don't have legacy infrastructure, but their business model depends on credit cards and credit cards used in foreign travel or, you know, between the UK and other countries that could be within Europe, but different currencies and people couldn't travel. So their valuation was hit, but now they're back uh, I think the their recent valuation following the five hundred million dollar round is four and a half billion. So good on Monzo. Um, on the other hand, their rival Starling um, and um, you know with their with the sorry with their with her, with their CEO, um, uh, Anne Bowden. She says, look, uh, even though uh, people like Revolut and Monzo have more accounts they only have 60% of deposits of uh, of starting. So how is that happening, right? So maybe the the customers are dormant or maybe just uh, buy a coffee once in a while, which is uh, probably true. So again, where I'm headed with this, uh, it's not only about having millions of customers, but paying customers and also what kind of customers, even though you're digital, uh, maybe if people have only uh, $5 in the account, that's uh, that's not uh, easy for you to turn them into a profitable customer, right? So again, I'll mention a couple of names here. Monzo seems like they recovered um, even though yeah, let's see how the the winter's going to look like in the UK. Starling. I think their focus is slightly different as well. One other thing I wanted to say is they have apparently half of the market share of small and SME or small. Uh, businesses uh, half of the market share of uh, of uh, Barclays and uh, you know Barclays has been here for for much much longer than that Starling so I'm uh, I'm a fan of Starling I think this is a a, it's a great story Um, so I just wanted to pause here maybe David you have some examples from the US some of the fortunes of the neobanks during the pandemic People or the companies that went up and some went down. Why do you think that w- that is? It seems like there are wildly different um, success stories and superficially, you know, they should be doing, all, all, they all should be doing.
0: Yeah. In the States, we've definitely seen some do fantastic, like Chime. Uh, we've seen some of the neobanks like Mercury Bank do very well. We've seen ones like Bluevine not do that well, mostly because of customer success We've seen Grasshopper Bank do very well. And then some of the traditionals, even like uh, Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic, have done very well, especially with the startup ecosystem. So you see both digital and traditional banks doing well. And I think it comes down to relationships. I think it comes down to fanatical customer success, where companies are ensuring a white glove service, whether it's through automation or whether it's through relationships. Uh, There's been other startups I've been tracking in both New York and SF, that I think just because of the competition just could not get the right market penetration and go to market efforts that they needed. So some of them are winding down as well. Uh, it's a competitive space, right? And you know, not all fintechs will make it to an IPO. Yeah,
1: it's, a, it's, an exec, you know, it's about execution, right? Um, p- people can have a nice strategy. Uh, they can even get one thing right. Uh, they're doing, you know, they're pro- providing services, products for free, and then um, at some point they need to uh, turn it into a profit and that's challenging, right? So uh, how is that going to to look like? But um, what I also wanted to talk about, as I said, a little bit on a lighter note perhaps, or maybe a darker note, depends how you take it. But of course, uh, Facebook has been renamed uh, recently to uh, Meta, right? And a lot of people talking about Metaverse and all this. And I think in last uh, few days we've seen uh, well, frankly, I don't know what we've seen, whether this is a sign of metaverse already happening or, uh, or it's a legitimate uh, influence of media on, on the markets, but what I wanted to mention is the Peloton, right? And it's the sequel to Sex and the City and Mr. Big uh, dying after a uh, ride with Allegra and then uh, then Peloton losing 10% of their market cap. Now, obviously, they've lost a lot of the a uh, lot of the market cap already uh, earlier this year. Uh, they are nowhere near their heights that they used to be. Uh, probably at the beginning of the year, but uh, I just wanted to share uh, share this amusement with you, David, because we didn't have a time to or chance to discuss this, but. I mean, what do you think this is? You know, the fictional character dies on the show and then um, that company loses 10% of its value. I mean, what kind of world do we live in?
0: I mean, this reminds me of the story when when Elon Musk tells his Twitter followers, you know, should I sell Tesla stock? And then, you know, they've democratized and said, sell $10 billion of Tesla stock uh, or should GME or AMC go up? Uh, you know, I think what's happened as a result of lockdowns and pandemic is we live in such a digitally turned on society where every single moment you're on, you're always on, you're always wired. And so when you have a premiere of the reboot of Sex in the City, and they're having this episode with Peloton and like everyone's on it and they see this moment, you know, everyone's just coming together, the Wall Street bets crowd and everyone's saying, we're going to make this bet. We're going to go against Peloton. And then you saw that drop in the stock today that Peloton stock recovered about 7.5%. So maybe it was just short-lived hype for certain. Uh, But I I think that's the challenge of a digital-first society.
1: Right. And it continues. You know, I've seen a response of Suzanne Steinbaum, a member of Peloton's Health and Wellness Advisory Council and preventative cardiologist. And she said that Mr. Big lived what many would call an extravagant lifestyle, including cocktails and cigars and big steaks and he was at a serious risk of, uh, you know, as he had a previous cardiac event in season six anyway. And uh, because of these lifestyle choices and perhaps his family history, which is also a significant factor, uh, you know, these were probably the likely cause of his death and riding his Peloton bike might have even helped delay his cardiac event. So imagine this. This is a real-life person, right? A member of the Advisory Council of Peloton commenting on... Again, a plot in a TV show, right? Well, it's a great PR
0: moment, you know, even though it was a terrible PR moment for Peloton in the short run, it's a great opportunity to strike back. And, uh, you know, I think looking on this uh, in five, ten years down the road, right, everyone's going to watch this reboot. And so <laughs> Peloton obviously paid for this spot. And so they're going to get some dividends on that PR, not in the short term, but a hopefully longer term.
1: Okay, I mean, apparently... The- they said, well, we were not in touch with the producers, it was just an opportunity for one of our uh, trainers to get into it and uh, we were not consulted, etc." But they came back. I don't know if you noticed, but apparently they're running an ad with Chris North, uh, having a drink by the fireplace with that instructor and uh, basically Peloton saying, you know, and just like that, he's alive.
0: Look, I'm going to make a quick comment on Peloton. So I do not own Peloton stock and I don't own any Peloton devices, but I have multiple friends in New York city who got injured from their Peloton bikes and their Peloton treadmills. So I do think there is a real risk with the devices. I know that's not what they portrayed on the show, but uh, you know, I just think back to Nordatrack. I think back to the days of when I owned a Nordatrack elliptical and the Nordatrack treadmills, that is all the Peloton products are plus an iPad that gives you gamification statistics. So should the stock really be worth at one point you know tens of billions of dollars? I think that's still uh, to be determined.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean that's why I don't own it. I don't own the stock. I don't I, I don't think I will ever buy a stationary bike for four and a half thousand and wait for it for two months or something. I think this is uh, yet another discussion, right? So I agree with you. And I think on every sort of equipment you can get injured. Uh, I don't know whether this one is more or less uh, prone to injury, maybe because you're staring at the screen uh, instead of watching what you're doing. I don't know. Oh, I like uh, that.
0: That's totally right, right? Are we meant to actually stare at screens 24 seven? You know, you're supposed to be in your form and getting your feet and your back and you know your entire body in alignment and chances are maybe you fell out of that, right? Maybe you laughed at Mr. Big's joke, or some. maybe someone was watching Sex in the City on the Peloton. Happened to them, too.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've seen other things in the past. You know, you had, like, a big projector screen, and then you were in the forest, so that's different. Um, But all right, I mean, there was a pandemic. You know, you could also live in a big city, so sometimes it's very difficult to to run around town, right? Uh, Not everybody lives close to the forest uh like like i do for most of the year so um i i get some appeal but uh, but i agree with you i think this market cap is is it was ridiculous to begin with right um one other thing i wanted to to talk about kind of uh connecting the two worlds europe and the us right because when you look at the the us and the history of the vc industry um it's it hasn't been a cottage industry for a long time in america you know people are uh used to owning the shares or stock directly not just the funds not just uh, saving money on the savings account like in europe they they used to until recently but now with the low interest rates that has changed as well in europe and uh when you look at the stats i think that the europe is catching up with in uh, in terms of vc funding Um, What I've also seen is what I like to see a lot is that fintech is at record heights this year. Um, It's probably every fifth dollar of the VC funding around the world goes to fintech, so that's great for every founder out there in the fintech arena. But I'm glad that Europe is uh, getting closer and closer to to the U.S. in terms of funding because, uh, as I said, people... Uh, In Europe, we're a bit more traditional conservative and uh, apart from the UK, you didn't have that much direct uh, stock ownership and uh, not to mention uh, exposure to alternative assets like the, you know, being even a business angel and investing in in startups. So this is changing and uh, I don't know whether you've seen, any, you've seen any changes in 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 the US and also, David, you're running your own syndicate as well. Um, how has deal-making uh, changed? Because a year ago, people were saying, even in the VC arena to me that, uh, look, uh, it's so hard to do deals because, you know, it's so much better to be in the room. You can read the people better and things like this. And I was like, really? I'm not so sure, right? I mean, um, of course, you are investing in the team, you're investing in in people at the early stage, but um, it should be about the business, right? So are you going to that meeting to uh, to you know judge people by firmness of their handshake or or what's going on here? Or some other investors were saying, well, you know, we feel like we need to do four times as as much time on Zoom than in person just to offset this uh uneasiness that we haven't met in person so what are your thoughts on uh remote fundraising and remote deals
0: so, so there's been a lot of acceleration of fundraising and capital not only in the pandemic but now in the post-pandemic world and my experience there so i've run a syndicate called data power ventures and i'm an emerging fund manager as well uh, in, in just the last year and a half you know we've done over 25 deals Uh, ranging anywhere from 100,000 to half a million of capital deployed in these North American startups. I think one thing that is being seen in the industry right now is there is, of course, more liquidity available. So people are putting money to work and they're putting them at all stages of startups, anything from pre-seed through secondaries, right before those IPOs or SPACs. I focus exclusively on the pre-seed and seed market. And I think we're seeing a lot of startups growing with capital, All over the world. Now, I focus predominantly on North America. So, about maybe 95% of my investments are startups in the United States or Canada. Though I do have uh, partners who run their emerging funds and and syndicates in Europe. Um, One of them runs a fintech syndicate as well. And I've been seeing uh, tremendous growth, especially in the developing economies. You look at countries like Pakistan and India, where traditionally they were not digital only societies. So, those fintechs are growing hyper. Especially because you see that everyone has mobile devices and 5G and 4G. So it's very quickly to download an app and get the unbanked and underbanked online very quickly. Um, Though, with that said, valuations have gone up a lot. Uh, Pre pandemic, typically, if we're looking at North America, a pre seed company would raise at a post money cap somewhere from three to six million. And a seed company would raise somewhere from, let's say, a six to a 10 million valuation. Now we're seeing post pandemic, pre seeds are going anywhere from like four to 15 million, and seeds are going anywhere from maybe eight to 30 million. So the valuations are really high. We're seeing companies, even in fintech, that are raising seeds at 100 million post valuation. And again, these are just some of the US ones. I'm not sure there's valuations for Europe and, and other developing nations, but I think there is a point that. It's important to remember to, if you are an investor, right, my fiduciary responsibility to you is to make sure like first you only allocate a percentage of your discretionary income into investments. And typically that's like less than 10% of your discretionary investment income. And then to make sure that, you know, you're looking at a variety of deals and you're making sure that you're, you're getting the best interest that you can see. And, uh, sometimes it's not worth following every investor. Because I, I think when we're going to look back on this time in five, 10 years, a lot of these fintechs, just as you mentioned earlier, Rudy, rightfully, they will not make it. Uh, they, they will not. And uh, then there's going to be down rounds and, and dilution and and some of that capital will not be returned. So um, although A16 says every company is a fintech company, because we, we are capitalists as a society, uh, there does come a time when valuations just don't make sense. So we'll have to see where that catch up is going to
1: yeah absolutely um i mean let, let's see i'm just coming back to the jc flowers again and the fintech bubble i i think i saw his interview as i said on um you know when he was visiting germany the other day and uh he was quite skeptical but uh, how how can you judge the fintech bubble just because there are so many companies raising money at uh, higher and higher rounds even though they haven't turned a profit. I mean, that was the same thing with Amazon.
0: This is true. And, you know, I think this also, at least in the United States, this becomes the big question of East Coast versus West Coast investor. You look at the West Coast traditional VC firm and they're like, how many users do you have? How can you grow? Like, can you grow at any cost? Can you scale? It's fine if you're bleeding money, no worries at all. And we'll invest at this valuation and 10x and 100x that. And typically the East Coast investors like New York City, like where I'm at, although that's not how I exclusively identify, it's what is your revenue? Like what's your post revenue? What is your revenue growth? Talk about your your, your last 12 months trailing. Talk about you know, your lifetime value, your customer acquisition costs. It's very focused on the business. So you do see two schools of thoughts for investors. And of course, a lot of companies have been successful losing money until they own a percentage of the market and then adjust their business model so that they make money
1: yeah so let's see how that goes but i guess the message here is uh don't just be attracted to the media hype uh look through the the news as well for the signs of cracks in the in the in the facade as i said and uh maybe you will not want to follow everyone and just uh Uh, you know, make a decision. Um, I know it is very hard, especially early stage, but um, not everything that is just growing these days will be a big success. Uh, If this was the case, then, you know, we can all just uh, sign up to eToro, right? Um, eToro is a social trading platform uh, where you just uh, follow the people that are, successful and uh, it is obviously very risky because they can be trading forex they can be trading all kinds of stuff and all you do is uh, well you sign up you give money to the platform and then um, the platform will automatically invest in the same way as some of the investors on the platform you just copy them i think it's pretty cool i like it but you know i i didn't put uh, a lot of money there but uh, when you want to differentiate yourself and and uh, spend more money do your diligence and even if it's early stage and maybe you focus on the team maybe you focus on the idea a lot of these things there are ways how to um, distinguish um, what's what's genuinely a great idea great team from the nonsense and uh, you know you're also hosting your own podcast uh, humane right uh, david and so I wanted to bring up again, maybe it's too obvious, but maybe it's not a topic of AI noise. And uh, at some point you had all the fintech companies saying that we are a blockchain company, then we are an AI company. And uh, and I also coach the uh, AI machine learning course of starting to at the Singapore Management University and uh, digital transformation at the Imperial in London. And we talk about it a lot. And uh, I've seen a great article in my research, which basically said, you know, at least 40% of the founders that that say that they're using AI in their business, actually not using any AI whatsoever, you know, just some data extraction routine or something is not AI at all. And even then, what kind of AI are we talking about? It's just uh, machine learning most of the time, right? Sometimes you, You can have chatbots that use NLP and things like this. So, um, do you see the inflation of that word uh, AI, David, as well in the US? Or uh, do you think now it's been sorted and uh, people don't even try that game? It definitely has not been sorted. And, you know, for me, with this humane
0: podcast focused on human augmented workflows and intelligence. I launched it three years ago before Stanford launched their High Institute. And having seen so many signals, interviewing over 150 founders, building data ML and AI-powered startups, I wanted to launch my syndicate to invest. And I thought, should I go with the name AI-powered, ML-powered? I said, no, let's go with data-powered because it's really important to go at the foundational infrastructure layer one. Uh, A lot of companies that say they're AI-powered when I talk to them, I say, okay, let's, let's talk about your technology. Roll it back. I can go straight into your code. Let's see what you're building. Uh, is it cloud? Is it native? Oh, you're saying your engineers are building this native. Okay, so what packages did you fork this on? Like, let's go into it. And usually you, you very quickly realize it's not, right? And uh, it can happen once you're uh, a Series A or beyond. Uh, Sometimes early stage, what we're seeing is companies that use AI are taking off-the-shelf tools, which is fantastic, right? Just like how every business is and can be a technology business, we will move through this decade of data where the modern data stack rises with all these tools, where every company does become a data-powered company, which can then augment that with machine learning and artificial intelligence. Now, what that looks like will be different, whether that means fraud detection or that means giving recommendations to customers, or um, helping with workflows that are more automated or streamlined. So all this is possible for those insights and automations. Though I definitely say when a company says they're building something with AI, you wanna peel that layer back and say, is it really? The same thing goes, I'll comment on the other notion that you shared earlier, really about blockchain. You know, Every company does not have Solidity developers building from scratch. For example, A16 recently backed a company called Alchemy. So you can go to alchemy.com and they just raised a $250 Series C. Almost all these huge blockchains that we're talking about today, none of this is built from scratch. It's all using these tools that already exist. So no one's writing C-sharp Solidity, right? There's already systems out here in infrastructure. So just to give it some pause when you're thinking about this, does it exist? And also, is it by versus
1: exactly now you know as we getting to a, a holiday break uh, I just wanted to share one tip for a movie I mean it's a very old movie but uh, in case you missed it and of course it's about Alan Turing right because if you are ever interested in um, artificial intelligence then you should know what the Turing test means which is basically Alan Turing um, designed this as uh if you get a machine to a level where you as a human cannot distinguish whether you're talking to a machine or uh, or a human then that machine has reached uh, general intelligence and uh, of course we are nowhere near this by the way but the movie is called Enigma so uh, very famous but an old movie but nevertheless uh something super super smart and uh probably a bit more digestible than checking out what Alan Turing Institute does in in the UK but if you are more um, uh, motivated than just watching a movie do that as well uh, I spoke to uh, the uh, their president very talented very accomplished uh, lady who runs this so check out also Alan Turing's Institute if you are into AI one other favorite pet topic of mine is when we talk about blockchain you know i i always hear this um uh kind of a pro uh, you know kind of a, an advantage of a of a blockchain that nobody disputes and that's immutable immutability so, so it's not you know something that you can break you cannot crack it etc it's true uh let's see for how long though because um really uh looking forward to see a desktop a quantum computer hopefully in my lifetime maybe not i think we are still super far away from this but i did join the uh abu dhabi global markets uh, fintech festival and uh i did know that uh, obviously in abu dhabi also they are working on their own quantum computer uh, they brought the uh, scientists from singapore to work on this so that's another thing to uh to to watch out for and you know why are we so far away from getting anything useful it's apparently because um you know the way that the quantum computer work they don't need bits once zeros but they use qubits which is some state between one and zero really but We need something stable so we can use it and we need a lot of them right so maybe we have i don't know 20 30 and we need a thousand or something like this but also they need to operate in very low temperatures and there's something interesting i've seen recently and uh, no surprise this comes from finland which is very cold anyway and the researchers came up with a controller that can work at close to absolute zero which are the temperatures used in most quantum computers not all of them but it's something really exciting, I think, because uh, you wouldn't know why these sort of computers look like. There are some little uh, cubes and then there are so many uh, cables or wires coming out of it, and that's because you need to to cool them, really. So um, the cost of the wiring alone can be 1 million euros on a quantum quantum computer. So they came up with a microwave uh, controller that solves one of those problems. Let's see. And uh, all I'm trying to say is that if you do have crypto, maybe don't sit on it for 50 years. By then, uh, who knows whether quantum computers will be around and and uh, as you could read, some of those uh, protocols that are at the core of uh, immutability of blockchains could be cracked. So let's see, um, which leads me to another question. Of course uh elon musk has to say something about uh crypto right and apparently he did say that uh, he believes that dogecoin is better to buy things than than bitcoin i don't know right i don't know what you think whether is there any uh cryptocurrency apart from things that are called stable coins that you could actually use for payments or is this really like a digital gold um and uh Question related to that is, what do you think about uh, theater, theater, right? Uh, apparently backed by US dollar, but uh, they had some issues when it turned out that it wasn't really 100% backed by dollar, right? So, David, any thoughts on Dogecoin versus uh, theater and uh, stable coins
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, first, everything I'm going to share is my opinion and it is not fiduciary recommendation. So, please do not manipulate the market after this. But I'll, I'll say that. You know, first, it was really fascinating on Tether, Tether with the, the U.S. dollar when they realized that it wasn't one to one. So uh, that means, right, because there was no backing. It's not like gold bullion in some vault that Tether was attached to to say this is the value. So definitely that's not an inflation hedge. And that if you were considering making investments or speculation in cryptocurrency that, you know, you're not going to gain any money with that asset with USDT so when you look at other um, cryptocurrencies in the market um, first it's important to note that if you are considering investing in any of them it's important to see what is the liquidity of the asset and how much movement and volatility is there on a basis usually when there's not much liquidity you most likely don't want to invest in those assets that means that there's you know you put the money in but you may not be able to get the money out so that's something to consider Um, today Look, Bitcoin has a lot of liquidity. So this is excellent for if you put money in, you're going to be able to get the money out. There's no run on Bitcoin. Even some of the drops that we've seen in Bitcoin in the last few months, they have come back up. Down to the 40s, back up to the 50s, 50s, 60s, 60s, 40s, all of that. And there's still liquidity. You can get your money in and out. Um, of course, the fees are higher on Bitcoin and Ether as opposed to the father, right? Dogecoin. So you know, what do I think of Dogecoin? I don't know. It's too early. Like, let's see in two or three or five years where Dogecoin is. Um, and if you are going to do an investment into the cryptocurrency space, just like how you would diversify your assets with equities, uh, you should also diversify in crypto and, and not go all in um, and be willing to have everything be lost. There is that real risk and possible.
1: Good point. Yes. So look, we are not giving out any investment advice, uh, but if you want any advice in life diversify right and uh, that's a principle of every asset manager every advisor uh, in addition to actually knowing you where are you in life what's your financial situation what's suitable for you and what's not so no one can give you responsible tips without knowing that so um have a think on for yourself what you want to do um I came across something quite interesting though Maybe the people have uh, too much money post the pandemic. There is pent up demand and uh, there there were not enough events open uh, this year. So uh, they maybe don't know what to do with the money. So instead of cash in uh, little wrapped boxes or tucked inside Hallmark cards, what people are apparently doing are they are giving uh, cash gifts in crypto or NFTs and uh the way that works is that even you know the giver would uh, set up a wallet for for that person and uh you know put uh, put the cryptocurrency in there or you know more interestingly potentially would be uh nft so non-fungible token uh, everybody is also in two different camps there there are some big fans of this and there are some people who are very wary of this i mean i i like the uh digital equivalent of um the uh, certificate of uh you know genuine uh that it's for example the collectible is genuine right so i think that that is a cool thing but the truth is which a lot of people don't say because they see the big numbers of some crazy things um reaching st- uh, stratospheric evaluations on open sea or Rareable is that actually it costs money to mint an nft and apparently 70 percent or so of these nfts are loss making because it can cost up to thousand dollars to mint an nft and there is a long tail of nfts that don't reach that value right not everybody uh, is that lucky to uh to sell a rainbow cat illustration for for 0.6 ethereum or you know, our gift of Taco Bell's uh, for for Ethereum or something like this. So, um, just think about it when you also are an artist, and a lot of artists are thinking about this as uh, having uh, income directly from their art without intermediaries, which I think is great. Also, every time the art uh, changes hands, but the truth is, uh, it looks like with many things that the winner takes all. Um, but apparently that's a new trend uh, uh, this holiday season giving people um giving people the uh, crypto or nfts um one fun things or two things that are out there as well are mimi stocks um and uh, tungsten cubes so you know you hang out with a lot of people at the uh at the events uh, around new york uh, have people talked about Giving somebody a Mimi stock or uh, getting a tungsten cube based on this uh, fake, uh, you know, um, fake uh, Twitter mentioning that all the crypto miners uh, caused a shorten shortage of uh, f- of uh, tungsten, and that's why we we now need to buy it if we ever see it somewhere to uh, make sure that uh, we, um, you know, uh, we make money actually in the shortage and for those of you who don't remember your chemistry class just like i didn't uh this is a substance nearly twice as dense as lead and uh, the cubes run anywhere from four hundred dollars for two inch cube to three thousand for a four inch cube so again something quite ridiculous i think but uh, uh any uh, any sort of thoughts or uh comments that you've seen uh, that you've heard on the on the ground on the fintech scene in new york david, david. Well, first, you know, I'd love to have some tungsten cubes for Christmas, so feel free
0: to send us as holiday gifts, but <laughs> all kidding aside. Um, on the NFT side, I think NFTs are definitely um, alive and wild. I'll be going to an NFT event. There'll be a new minting at an event this Thursday at the secret location in New York City, so I'm excited to see what gets minted. Um, from one of these companies, so they are definitely alive in the wild. But one thing I'll mention, um, which I hinted at a few episodes ago on on Fishbowl when we were talking about fintech success and some of the critical views, is uh, Dapper Labs, Dapper Labs, and Top Shot, which is focused on basketball. And um, I think I went so far to say in an episode that these are going to be worthless, these NFTs. And like here we are now, like a few months later, and almost any every NFT on Top Shot is like worthless. They're literally worth nothing. Like at one point they did like $300 million a month in um, trades for their assets. And now it's like absolutely nothing. So, you know, all I just say is uh, while I, I, I am not a harbinger of the future, but um, I think there's almost no intrinsic value on any NFT other than uh, the possibly to lock in this uh, value. And I think they're valuable in the sense of gamification, which is why I'm excited that Ubisoft is going to bring nfts into the game and why i could be excited to see nfts into like sports and competitions and leaderboards um but beyond that you know i think i'm uh, i'm more interested in things that are not tulip bulb uh, manias or tungsten
1: yeah i mean of course uh it's not much interesting value interesting value but i think it's also what you mentioned about bitcoin it's about liquidity right so if you have your baseball card and uh, you have a hologram on the back and you want to sell it would have to go to some physical market to do it but if it is an nft then you can sell it quite easily right yeah i think so assuming there is there is a market for that and i think one thing
0: that dapper labs did with top earlier was they actually restricted trading flows to like at one point once every 15 minutes and other time frames so they were creating this artificial demand for the asset that didn't exist and um we're seeing that a lot also in the cryptocurrency market today with um staking you know you'll stake a value and you'll hold in there'll be a period until you can redeem these these uh rights so it creates a pegged value that may or may not fully be there and that's similar to what we've seen even in web2 assets right when you think of stocks going ipo over spacking you know, usually employees have a holdout period of call it you know six months or one year before they can liquidate that so that there is more liquidity um in the market so when we look at all this i think there's so much to be said and i think the web2 web3 um, growth is just in the early days. And, and we've seen that with social platforms. I think like you mentioned earlier, uh, Rudy in the States also we have public.com. Public.com lets you see what other people are investing in stocks, funds, and crypto. Um, you also have common stock, which lets you you know follow other people making their positions and join in on them. And there's you know other platforms that are bridging the gap of web two and web three, everything from you know equities to cryptocurrency and NFT and DeFi and Will actually be at Data Power making uh, an investment in one of these Web 2, Web 3 hybrid platforms. Um, so, very fascinating to see where the whole market lands.
1: Wonderful. I think, yes, some very exciting things happening. Of course, it could be very Wild West because the regulators are typically behind uh, all of these innovations, right? And uh, there are scammers everywhere. So, watch out. Uh, yeah, I just want to mention again about NFTs. Uh, apart from the intrinsic value uh, I also feel for people who uh, who do this and uh, they don't even cover their costs right because the minting cost from one dollar to nine hundred dollars apparently an average on OpenSea is 500. so not everybody gets uh, a few million for their NFT like Jack Dorsey Twitter founder apparently sold his first ever tweet for as high as 2.9 million (laughs) dollars you know, selling a tweet, right? Amazing. So that's uh, that's on NFTs. But also what I wanted to talk about is do we finally know who is Satoshi Nakamoto? Because who is he? Did we hear? Well, who are they? Or who is she? Well, well, apparently there's been a guy for five years who's been saying that that's him and uh he's an australian living in the uk and his name is craig wright and uh him and his partner david Kleiman um apparently worked on this um and uh david uh, Kleiman is now deceased and his estate is suing uh, mr craig wright because they want uh half of the fortune that um, apparently craig wright has so uh, they were saying that they formed a partnership and launched Bitcoin under the pseudonym of Satoshi Nakamoto. And then after death of uh, Mr. Kleinman in 2013, Mr. Wright covered up uh, his partner's involvement. Now, apparently the Florida jury rejected uh, claims that he did that and he formed the partnership. So he's very happy. They dismissed uh, almost all of the claims. But uh, they awarded the estate of uh, Mr. Clement, who lives in Florida. So next time you're down there, in uh, David, maybe, maybe you can talk to, the, uh, th- uh, to his family if they let you. Uh, so the jury awarded um, uh, the estate $100 million. So Craig Wright says he feels he's vindicated because that proves that he is behind the Bitcoin, because otherwise the jury wouldn't have awarded this uh even though you know <laughs> he lost on this one account but he claims that's a proof that he's behind bitcoin and he can claim and he can keep the all the bitcoin he has which uh there are obviously uh, different uh, accounts of how much uh, bitcoin he's got but apparently uh 50 billion or something like that uh, worth and um yeah at current prices so this is what Apparently it's going on here, but it's been disputed for the five five for the last five years So if anybody has any proof or any view on this uh, do let me know. I think it's uh, it's interesting um, I I don't know whether uh, it could be him, but uh, Where does he have the the bitcoins worth 50 billion from that's also? Uh, that's also a mystery, right? So I don't know whether you've come across this lawsuit saga, apparently it's been going on for a few years. In multiple countries now, it ended in Florida.
0: Well, I'd be happy to get a selfie in front of their place and maybe mint an NFT, but I'm not sure if I'll get much more.
1: So hopefully you cover your costs, you know, so at least $500 and, uh, before you turn any profit. So imagine that, right? So. It's not like uh, a $500 NFT is going to uh, make any sense. Uh, you need to do you need to get a lot more. So but yeah, so that is the apparently what's going on in the Florida courts. Uh, you can deduce and read to it whatever you like. Uh, this is not from some alternative media as uh, as uh, Kramer used to say even on uh, for a long time ago, right? when. He came up with something outrageous and and uh, jerry would ask him so where did you see that and he said well the alternative media jerry so you know it wasn't there it was uh, reported on wall street journal and also bbc so uh take a look uh and look for the satoshi nakamoto and uh, florida uh lawsuit or civil lawsuit and um, um you know make your own uh judgment uh, but uh If you also have any questions for us uh, please uh, do raise your hand and uh, we're happy to hear from you or any suggestions in terms of fintech humor by the way because I was thinking about some year-end show that we could do and uh, I've seen the ads for Klarna that Snoop Dogg has made or other people frankly I'm not sure you know I didn't think that uh, uh, the fintech advertisers were particularly funny. But if you do come across something like that, then please do let us know at info at voiceoffintech.com. Or if you have suggestions for the topics or the guests uh, or any sort of feedback on the live shows and how we can do this better for you, and uh, maybe if we should bring somebody on the show as well, uh, who would you like to, to hear from live or recorded? That would be great. All right. So I think this is all we had in store for today. But as I said before, please, if you have any ideas or feedback or questions, you can reach us at info at voiceoffintech.com. Uh, you can also uh, check out the website, voiceoffintech.com. There is at least uh, 200 episodes there. A lot more are ready to go uh, from the US, from Canada from Latin America, from Africa, Asia, Europe, what have you, all over the world. And uh, tomorrow, or midnight your time rather, uh, there'll be an episode uh, with a partner from Miller Thompson. We're going to talk about FinTech and technology M&A. Um, Myron, he's based in Toronto, Canada, and he advises a lot of uh, companies in both Canada and the US about the M&A deals, of course, as I said, but the fundraising cross-border as well and he's got some thoughts about American investors investing in Canadian startups also you know on the rec tech uh, on a Canadian scene etc and then uh, a couple of other great episodes how to for example uh, helping amateur sports teams to survive this pandemic and uh, make money how to do it in an original way so again everything can be a fintech if you think about it so That's coming up in next few weeks, and uh, happy to hear from you every every time, and uh, curious to to connect with you also in the in the new year. So thank you, David, as well. And uh, any final comments?
0: This has been fun. I think it's still the early days of fintech. Uh, I think there's always a lot of great new topics we'll see moving into 2022. So looking forward to some more deep dive.
1: So thank you so much, everyone, for joining.